five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. My guest this week is Sarah Spangelo, co-founder and CEO of Swarm Technologies. The company is noteworthy for its innovation in developing a communication satellite one quarter the size of a traditional CubeSat, which is 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. To put it another way, and as my guest put it, the size of a grilled cheese sandwich. The company wants to build and launch 150 of these Pico satellites, called Space Bees, to create a global network to allow Internet of Things devices, such as sensors in a farmer's field, to send small amounts of data back to servers for processing. Currently, the company has seven experimental satellites in orbit. Swarm is less than two years old, and it's gotten more attention than perhaps they would have wanted. Last year could have been a company-killing year for a startup as they ran afoul of the Federal Communication Commission when they not only launched four of their satellites without an FCC license, they also performed unauthorized weather balloon to ground station tests and unauthorized tests of satellite and ground station equipment. They settled with the FCC, paying a whopping $900,000 fine, and they recently closed their Series A round of financing for $25 million. The company wants to put past mistakes behind them and build the company out with its innovative technologies. Listen in. Welcome, Sarah, to the Space Q podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into Swarm and the company you're trying to build, let's discuss one of your experiences before Swarm took off. In 2017, you were one of 3,772 people who applied to be an astronaut in Canada. You made it to the round of 32, which is really impressive. How was your experience in going through the selection process and what did you learn? Yeah, it was a very phenomenal process, um, and I met some amazing people along my route. Um, the process was very intense. Uh, we would have these boot camp type experiences where we'd be tested uh, physically, mentally, in teams with very little sleep. Um, it was extremely active um, and engaging throughout the days. Um, so it really tested kind of our endurance and our ability to sustain those types of um, the types of challenges and stressors throughout the day. I think the most amazing thing I learned is just how amazing Canadians are. Honestly, um, it was so nice and refreshing to be able to go back and spend that much quality time surrounded by um, all of the Canadians in the various rounds that I participated in. Um, one of my favorite stories is when the, when all of us would go grab our backpacks um, you would just see like 40 Canadians all very politely picking up their backpacks and saying, sorry, 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 because they were hitting one another as they were doing it. And I just thought, this must be very different at the American astronaut uh, <laughs> um, tryouts. Uh, so it was just, it was so nice to spend quality time with Canadians that had excelled. Um, they'd been pilots, they'd um, been uh, the doctors, PhDs, scientists, engineers. It was just such a broad spectrum of Canadians that had excelled in so many different ways. And it was just great to kind of 
go back to my roots for a while and be able to spend time with them, learn from them, um, and be inspired by them. Now, in in November 2017, the Canadian Space Agency announced the 100 people who made it to the next round. You were one of those people because you made it to the final round of 32. Now, at the same time, you were just about to close your seed round of funding of $2.5 million with social capital. What were you thinking as you juggled two important but different career paths? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, I've always kind of juggled a lot of things. Um, I was just thinking I had to go for both opportunities because they were both very exciting. Um, and of course could take me in very different avenues. Um, to be perfectly honest, I thought that chances of being successful in the astronaut program were literally two in a hundred at that point, And it earlier been two and almost 4,000 as you pointed out. Um, so that was something that I wanted to pursue as it had been something that I'd been passionate about ever since I was a little girl, but I was realistic to the, uh, probability of that being successful. Um, so I guess you could say swarm with my backup plan. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, it was challenging to think about what I might do if there was presented both options. Um, but I, I'm very happy with where I am now and, you know, what I've been able to focus on in the last two years and the growth we've seen with swarm. So that, that actually brings to my next question, which is what would you have done if you had been selected? I didn't really have it fully figured out, to be perfectly honest. Um, I would have had some serious decisions to make. Um, I think being selected is a huge honor and something that needs to be you know, considered very, very carefully. Um, so I, I can't say with 100% certainty, but I know there would have been a lot of thought put into how to um, try to put Swarm on hold maybe as I pursued that or have, have it kind of pass off to someone else. Obviously the tech and the business opportunity is very unique. Um, and this is the right time for swarm to exist. So, um, it would have been really difficult to, uh, to choose. Um, but I, uh, I think I would have just spent a lot of time thinking and talking to people and, um, and tried to make the best decision I could at the time. My next question then after asking all that is, do you still want to be an astronaut? Um, I think childhood dreams like that don't die very easily. So, of course, I still want to be an astronaut. Um, I'm also realistic to um, what the space program might look like in 10 or 20 or 30 years. Um, And I think there's going to be even more access to space uh, for individuals with some of the companies you see emerging. Um, So, yes, I'm still hopeful that one day I'll get to experience um, a space-like environment. But I think I'd be pretty happy going out for a few orbits and then coming back home as well. All right. Well, we keep hearing that Virgin uh, uh, Galactic and, <laughs> yeah. and and Blue Origin are getting closer to that. It might just happen this year. So um, there's definitely that possibility. And at some point, even the price will come down so that mere mortals will might be able to afford it. Now, yeah. let's transition to, to, to Swarm Technologies. Since a lot of people sure. might not be familiar with your company, um, could you describe what you do? and why you think it's important. Absolutely. So Swarm um, launches and operates very small satellites. These satellites are as big as a grilled cheese sandwich, the media likes to say. So it's 10 by 10 by 2.5 centimeters. What we do is we launch these into low Earth orbit. So kind of like the space station, a little bit higher. Um, And we launch them into different orbits so they cover the entire globe. And because of the way that we've designed those satellites, we only need about 150 to have global continuous coverage. 
This means there's always a satellite overhead every point on Earth at all times. And what these satellites do is they provide affordable communications on a global scale. So right now today, if you walk outside where you have cell coverage, there's not a lot of great options in terms of satellite communications that are low cost and easy to buy um, and easy to integrate into existing devices. So Swarm is really trying to solve for this by providing global affordable internet. Um, and it's quite unique in this space. We're offering a service that is something on the order of one-tenth to one one-hundredth the cost of other players like Iridium or Orbcom. So it's a very exciting um, space to be in, and it's a very unique price point. Um, and what we're really trying to solve for initially is enabling devices. In particular, you might have heard of IoT devices. These are like little sensor devices on agriculture sensors or on a truck doing asset tracking, a shipping container, an energy uh, monitor in an energy grid like a solar panel or um, a wind generator, um, or even connecting cars in remote locations. And eventually we'll also be aiming to connect people that are in remote locations. So that's what the company is doing. Um, the reason we think this is important uh, well, we believe connectivity is key to a lot of things on a global scale. So it's really important that people can connect devices um, and themselves. Um, this has a lot of economic benefits. It's important for a lot of markets. It's important for safety, um, for emergency relief. Um, so we're really trying to solve for that connectivity piece that many people have been trying to solve for over the years. And we're trying to do it at a price point that makes it viable for a lot of markets where it wasn't viable previously. Now, let's talk a little bit about the technology. Uh, you mentioned the size of the satellites. And, and, and for those people out there that aren't too familiar with this, I mean, these are really, really small satellites. They weigh less than 450 grams or less than a pound. Our one quarter U CubeSat form factor, and you mentioned the size, although the size that I had was 11 by 11 by two and a half centimeters, so almost identical. Um, how can you deliver a reliable service in such a small form factor? Yeah, it's a great question. So you're right, the satellite is very innovative. It's 100th to 1,000th the size of a lot of satellites um, that provide similar services and considerably smaller than a lot of the NASA satellites that I worked on, for example, when I was at JPL. So the reason we were able to get the satellite so small is that we invented a new way for the satellites to stabilize. So instead of require, requiring some of the heavy and power-hungry equipment, like thrusters and reaction wheels and star trackers, all sorts of very specific equipment that's generally on satellites. We threw all of that out. Um, and instead, we just use um, an offset of mass and area, which is kind of like a trick um, in some of the disturbance forces that you experience in low Earth orbit. So if the satellite stabilizes kind of like a dark wood that you would throw um, in the air on Earth or a sail. Um, if you're out sailing. So it's passive and doesn't require any power or equipment, um, enabling us to miniaturize the satellites. Uh, something else that we take advantage of is the miniaturization of electronics. So it's pretty phenomenal what our cell phones can do today. Compare that to the massive computers that we had 20 or 30 years ago. So within cell phones, there's miniaturized processors, GPS, other sensors, and we leverage some of these commercial off-the-shelf components and put them in our satellites. So we don't require 
big and heavy and power-hungry um, equipment like a lot of the NASA satellites might use. Now, one of the technical issues that you ran into uh, with the FCC was um, uh, with the FCC and licensing was related to the ability to track your satellites. Uh, your first application was first denied because of this, though later approved in a limited scope, from my understanding. How are you convincing them that you can track them and explain how you're tracking them? So we have a lot of great data on the trackability of the satellites. Um, and that comes from three sources. The first is we have tracking data from an anechoic chamber, which is this special room that is able to um, show how big the signals will be off of um, an equ equipment like a satellite. Um, and that's from our partnership with SPAWAR, which is part of the Navy. Um, and they actually did a bunch of testing prior to launch with our quarter use and the radar reflectors that we have on the sides. And those results show that our satellites look as big as a 1U or bigger from all angles. So that was the first set of data that we had. The second set of data we have, I mean, the fact that NORAD, the group that generally tracks all satellites, has been successfully tracking our satellites since they were launched. So once or twice a day, um, the satellites will fly through a certain radar fence, um, and that data collected from that will be um, sent to the group that does the propagation of orbits. Um, and every day, these orbit solutions are updated. So the fact that we've been receiving what are called TLEs or two-line elements from NORAD since they were tracked shows that they've been successfully tracked that time. The third source of data, which is the richest um, and probably the most interesting, is from Leo Labs. Leo Labs is another startup here in the Bay Area, um, and we've partnered with them. Um, in order to use their ground stations um, in, to track our satellites. Um, and they've been tracking our satellites since they were launched as well. And what they're able to provide is not only tracking data, but also the cross-sectional data of the satellites, so how big they look when they're in space, um, how persistently they're tracked, so how reliably they're tracked. And they can also provide um, accuracies of the orbit solution. So that tells you how well they're being tracked. Um, and all of that data has come back now. And it turns out that we look as big as a 1U to a 3U. So that's 4 to 12 times bigger than our current satellites um, from most of their um, results. Um, and we're also tracked more frequently than typical 1Us. And we have better orbit solutions relative to 1Us. So all of this data from the on-orbit um, tests is super useful as we go to the FCC. And what we've done is we've put together a document that has all this data and all the results written up. Um, and we've provided that to the FCC for, for them to review and to understand just how trackable our satellites are. Um, all right. Another issue you ran, you ran into uh, when you launched your four initial satellites called Space Bees in January 2018 was that you operated them without an FCC license. You were subsequently allowed to operate the satellites, but on a limited basis. We're also fined $900,000, a hefty sum, and now have a pending application in the queue. You also did some unauthorized weather balloon to ground station tests and unauthorized tests of your satellite and ground station equipment. All seems to be relatively well with the FCC now, but explain, you know, what led to these problems, if you can? Sure, yeah. You certainly did your research. Good job on that. Um, so what I can say is that we're really happy to have that behind us. 
And as you pointed out, we've been productively working with the FCC. Um, and they've granted us two more applications, one to turn the quarter use back on and another to launch again in December. Um, and we've submitted our FCC commercial application and are starting to discuss that with the FCC. We've also hired a head of regulatory um, who's been a key addition to our team. Um, and we're really looking forward to continuing on uh, to launch our constellation um, as described um, in some of our previous articles. Right. So not to press the point too much, but would you say it was rookie mistakes in what led to this? Um, no. And I unfortunately can't comment on that uh, any further. Thanks. Okay. So, um, now, in the FCC application that you submitted uh, in late December, it calls for a constellation of 150 satellites. Uh, what orbits are they going to be in, and how will you handle maneuvering to avoid any possible collisions? Yeah, so all of the details of the um, constellation are outlined in our Part 25 FCC application. So we're targeting altitudes between 400 and 550 um, altitude. Um, and we are targeting inclinations ranging from equatorial to sunsink, which is about 97 degrees. So a whole range of um, different orbits, and this is in order to achieve the global coverage. And what was the second question? Sorry. How are you going to handle maneuvering uh, to avoid any possible uh, collisions? Yeah, so our satellites... Um, as they currently are designed are passive, so they don't have any active control um, in terms of propulsion capabilities. However, we are working on a next generation satellite, which will have magnet workers in the solar panels so they can change their orientation, which can change their drag, which can change their orbits um, to achieve collision avoidance. Um, the good news is that we've done all the NASA analysis and have shown that our satellites, even as they're passive, have an extremely low probability of collision um, in line with all of the other constellations that have been launched to date. Um, and that's partially because of the orbits we've selected, partially because of the small size of the satellites. Um, so we're not overly concerned about collisions. Um, however, we are actively tracking all of our satellites um, to be aware of any potential issues. And that technology you're talking about, that will be incorporated into these 150 satellites? It actually is not planned right now to be incorporated as it's not required in order to meet the collision ah, okay. avoidance uh, requirements. However, we're very close to flying those, so we may incorporate that. Okay. Um, it's just not currently guaranteed um, as part of that constellation. Does it worry you at all? That, I mean, we've gone from, in the last five to ten years, from uh, uh, about 1,400 or so or less at the point at, at back then, uh, active satellites in orbit to now we're going to have, who knows, 5,000, 10,000 satellites in, in orbit with a, a majority of those in, in low Earth orbit. Does it worry you how congested it's it's going to be? Um, I think it's a good question, and we're definitely very aware of collision avoidance issues and orbital debris. Um, I think there's been a lot of proposed constellations for hundreds or thousands of satellites, which we're pretty skeptical of when and if those constellations will fly. Um, and if you're of a certain size, you typically have propulsion, so you can do um, orbit avoidance maneuvers. Um, so I think the projected 
growth of a number of objects in low Earth orbit far exceeds what will actually happen. So I'm less concerned for that reason. Um, and then the fact that we do actively track all of the satellites and a large number of the satellites have uh, maneuverability and are able to avoid um, things that are that don't um, also makes me less concerned. So just a small little uh, pulse from a thruster can put a satellite in a completely different orbit um, and make the chance of a collision almost zero. Also, let's not forget that space is huge, right? We're talking 500 to 700 kilometers the entire, around the entire Earth. So when we run these analysis, we predict that the probability of collision is less than one in a million or less than one in a hundred million. So it's, it's almost much less probable than having a collision on your bike or in your car um, and, and some of the real world risks that we have here on Earth. Now, are you building all the satellites uh, in-house? We are. Uh, we're vertically integrated, so we build everything in-house, and that's part of the way that we're able, able to keep our costs very low. Now, speaking of costs, um, would you be able to provide us a estimate of what your uh, build cost is per unit? I wish I could, but unfortunately, that's part of the secret sauce inside our company, so I'm unable <laughs> to share that. I had to try. Um, <laughs> what, what's the lifespan of a Space B satellite? Yeah, a satellite lifetime is between three to five years, depending on the altitude. So if they go to 400 kilometers, their lifetimes are shorter, 550 a little bit longer. Um, and they're also varied because of the activity of the solar cycle. So if there's a solar flare or something, uh, the lifetime can vary quite a bit as well. And when do you realistically anticipate launching uh, your next batch of satellites? We're planning to launch our next um satellites on a rocket lab launch, which I recently learned has been shifted to May. It was originally um, April timeframe. So we're looking forward to that. That'll be out of New Zealand. Uh, and we're working on the regulatory approvals now for that launch. And how many satellites will be on that uh, rocket? We are planning probably two satellites on that rocket. Two satellites. <laughs> now of the, the this um Constellation of 150, is, are, is that part of that, or are these still just demo satellites? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the way the regulations work, um, we're unsure if we'll be able to convert satellites that we launch now to the eventual commercial, mar uh, uh, eventual commercial um, constellation. So we may use them for the commercial constellation, but we're like, they'll likely just be experimental satellites for the next few months. And in terms of those uh, beyond the, this, this launch in May, anticipated launch in May, uh, have you, were you going to plan on launching again later this year? Yeah, absolutely. So we're trying to get 150 satellites up by mid-2020. So after May, we'll be launching at least 12 satellites a month on a variety of launch vehicles. We've signed up for many of those launches. Um, and we'll just be popping them out. Um, and we're really excited as we march towards that number. How hard has it been for you to find launch service providers? I mean, you know, there's a lot of new companies that are trying to, to make a go of it. But in reality, um, for small sat launchers, um, there's really only, like when you're talking about small, small sat launchers, there's really only Rocket Lab at this point that's that's actually 
um, operating uh, at this time. And of course, you've got ride shares with, you know, on Israel, which you've done before, uh, there's SpaceX and the rest of it. So have you found it difficult to, to, to book rides? Um, no, actually, it's been pretty easy. So we fly a secondary payload yeah. on basically any launch provider that will have us. So we've been working closely with Spaceflight for a year and a half, I think, and they've been great. Um, they've been able to get us access to launches on PSLV, Vega, SpaceX, Rocket Lab, uh, Virgin coming up, and a few others. And then in some cases, I work directly with the launch providers. Um, and that's been fruitful as well. Um, and it's a really exciting space for us because there are so many rocket companies popping up. Uh, there's a lot of test flights, um, and there's a lot of deals to be had. So we've been able to, uh, work closely with a lot of our partners in order to, um, get good opportunities to fly and no, we're not lacking for opportunities, um, I think I my, last time I checked my list, there are seven launches in October, and I have to figure out which ones we want to go on. Right. Um, so we're certainly not lacking for opportunities. And are you happy with the price point you're getting? Um, we are, yeah. I mean, it would be nice if it was lower, but um, given our recent fundraise, we're in a very good position um, to commit to the number of satellites we want to launch. All right. So let's just talk a bit uh, again about the uh, uses of the, the Constellation and maybe uh, go a little bit more into uh, one use case in particular. Uh, agriculture, for instance. Give me a little bit more of a description of if I'm in the agriculture business, why would I consider using uh, your technology and, and what's, you know, what's the benefit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, actually, my family has come from farming families, so I get asked this question a lot uh, from Manitoba. Um, so one of the first use cases that we actually piloted with um, is a company that does moisture sensing, um, and that has become very popular in the ag tech space. So people want a lot more information about their crops um, and whether or not it's time to water, whether or not... Um, the crops have some other issue or, or they're ready to be harvested. Um, so there's been a lot of moisture sensing and other sensing companies pop up or it's a sense, essentially a small device that gets put in um, the ground and usually farmers want to have these distributed throughout their acres and acres of crops. Um, and part of the challenge is that even in the U.S., a lot of farmland does not have cell connectivity. So it's very difficult to have a way to bring data back from these sensors in order to make informed decisions across the crops. Um, so that's one area where Swarm can provide a lot of value. Um, it's particularly applicable to Swarm because generally it's small amounts of data. It's maybe one 200 byte message once or four times a day that it needs to get relayed. Um, and Swarm is really optimized for those types of small data volume applications were very cost effective, um, considerably more than competitors like other SATCOM solutions in that space. So that's one um, that has become very relevant, I think, especially here in California with concerns about water and drought, as you can imagine, and a lack of connectivity, particularly through the Central Valley um, and other places. Another one um, is trucks and tractors. So we're working with one of the biggest companies in that space. 
Um, and a lot of times there's valuable information from the trucks and tractors that's either getting collected from the field um, or just position, um, location, um, status and health of people that might be working near that truck or trailer. So having a connectivity solution um, attached to that vehicle is very relevant. And for the same reason as the moisture sensors may be needed, um, they're generally or often in locations where there's not great um, connectivity. So being able to phone home and even just send a small SOS message um, is super valuable. So you're developing uh, a variety of ground-based terminals that can be used in different applications? Yeah, we're developing um, our most modular unit is called the tile. And this is essentially like a cell modem or a satcom modem. It's an inch-by-inch square device and flat. Uh, It's very power efficient, and it can get integrated into existing devices like an agriculture sensor device or an asset tracker on a truck or trailer. Um, And then we're also developing a gateway. The gateway is a standalone device. We have a solar powered option, so you could even have it in a location with no power. And it can aggregate data over LoRa, Wi-Fi, or Bluetooth. And this is actually particularly relevant in agriculture as well, where you may have multiple sensors, like hundreds of sensors, all within a few hundred meters of each other. They could all relay data to the gateway. The data the gateway could do some computing, edge computing, some people like to call it, uh, perhaps um, optimize and um, minimize the amount of data that needs to get sent to the satellite. And then just that gateway hub sends data uh, to the satellites and then back calls through our network. Now, you recently closed your Series A round of finance of $25 million led by Kraft Ventures and with uh, Social Capital, 4DX Ventures, and NJF Capital. Um, Can you tell us a little bit how you're going to uh, use that money? Yeah, absolutely. So we're spending it in three main ways. The first is to launch our entire constellation. So I talked about signing up for all those launches. So that's where we're putting a lot of that capital to work. The second is to continue to hire a world-class team. So right now we're 11 people. We're looking to grow. We have a lot of open job recs on our site. Um, and we're looking to triple by the end of 2019. And then the third is accelerating our software and hardware uh, research and development efforts as we continue to optimize our current satellites and think to um, future versions of satellites that we may fly. And who would you say are some of your direct competitors in this space? I think some of the most direct competitors are some of the other emerging IoT companies like Fleet and Hyber. Um, they are also looking at small satellites, something on the order of the three or a six U to deliver data services on a global scale. Um, those competitors for them, as far as we can tell, are launching bigger satellites. So a three U is 12 times bigger than our satellite um, and seem to be a little bit behind in terms of the number of satellites they, they've deployed and the amount of capital that they've deployed. Um, so, we um, feel pretty confident with where Swarm is at right now. Okay, so before I get to my last question then, uh, I, there is one, one last thing, which is, um, you know, since this Internet of Things, IoT, is, you know, still so new, uh, and we've got all these, a lot of players trying to get into it from the 
space-based perspective, do you think there's room for everybody right now? For everybody being all of the existing startups today and yeah. proposed startups. Yeah. I mean, are there that, uh, are there so, there's a lot of opportunity. So is there room for, for everybody? Because not everybody's going to be doing the exact same thing. Yeah, it's a good question. And a lot of people are focusing on higher speed solutions or they're optimized for maybe U.S. coverage versus global coverage. So I think there's room for a few of us, but no, there's definitely not room for everyone, um, even from just a launch capacity and orbital debris issue, as you pointed out earlier. Um, so I think there will be winners that emerge in the next few years for sure. Now, you're going to have global coverage and your initial focus area is, is the United States, right? Um, are, you, are you even thinking beyond that at this point? Yeah, we certainly are. Um, the regulatory um, situation in the U.S. has slowed us down um, and will be our biggest constraint moving forward. Um, so we have started to look at how we expand beyond the U.S. Obviously, the U.S. is our priority with a lot of huge market players here. We just announced our partnership with Ford, um, and there's obviously a lot of testing and vehicles in the U.S. for that customer. Um, so we are focused on uh, U.S. approvals first in operation, but have started investigating what's required in order to get the appropriate licensing on a global scale. So that's something that we're actively pursuing kind of in parallel to uh, U.S. efforts. And we do have a lot of customers that are either multinationals um, or that we've started to talk to that um, are in other countries um, and, and trying to explore those use cases and markets. Hi. So my last question, which has nothing to do with what we've discussed, is what books, uh, fiction or nonfiction, are you reading or have you read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? So I just finished um, a really good book called Silicon Sky by Gary Dorsey. Um, and this is about the origins of Orbital and Orbcom. And it has some really interesting analogies. It's set about 30 years ago, but it has a lot of analogies with trying to start a startup in the space world with a really scrappy, dedicated team and facing all these challenges. Um, there were a lot of great quotes from that book that were very relevant from Swarm. So I'm getting my team to read it as well. And then I'm also reading right now Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman. Um, it's kind of a popular book in Silicon Valley right now. And I think Swarm has the potential to blitzscale in a lot of ways. So um, I'm learning quite a bit from that as well. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Sarah, for being my guest today. I, I hope you get well soon. Uh, it, um, ironically, you're in California. You have a cold, and I'm in freezing Canada, and I, I haven't got a cold this winter yet, so I'm, I'm hoping that doesn't happen. So. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> so uh, thank you for my guest. I, I hope we can get you on the show again as uh, your business uh, uh, grows. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube Podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spacequ.ca or you can post them on our website at spacequ.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode if you send me a comment by email i'll write back to you as soon as i can 
On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Cube. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.